Joshua chapter 2 and then Judges chapter 11 and 12. We're going to look at two Old Testament heroes and we're going to answer the question, what does God think about your past? Uh, Now, normally when you start talking about and delving into the depths of your past, you might be thinking, okay, he's going to get a little counselor on me. He's going to get a little maybe psychiatrist on me. I don't have any training or any desire to delve that deep. But I do want to look at what Scripture says. We ought to think about what God thinks about our past and how he views us in light of what he's done for us. And so a little story this morning from what Matt Lunsford and I agree is a top five movie of all time, Disney classic, The Lion King. Now, Star Wars, multiple movies, but on my top five, it's, it's one like one line of the top five, even though it's multiple movies. They just all clump into one. The Batman trilogy goes in the top five, the Christian Bale version. Goes in the Batman Begins all the way through Dark Knight Rises. That goes in the top five. But Lion King, Matt and I agree, right? We're in agreement. Top five movie of all time. And we, there'll be no debating or no tweeting at me after the service, first three rows, that it's not in the top five. And there's a really great scene in that movie where one of, the, one of my favorite characters in that movie, there's a lot of great characters, a lot of humor, a lot of dancing, a lot of singing, uh, a lot of great storylines that are built. But Rafiki, uh, the wise old baboon, he has this line and this thing that he does in this interaction with the adult version of Simba. The adult line is he's come back. Uh, to, to, to face his past and to stand up to his mean, violent, deranged Uncle Scar once and for all and take back the pride land that was his father's, that should have been his, uh, but something happened very tragic and he ran away. And in this interaction about whether or not he's man enough or big enough or strong enough or whatever to go and face his past, just out of nowhere, Rafiki, what does he do? Anybody seen it? Smacks him in the head with a stick with a couple of reeds on the end of it. Hard. I mean, hits him hard. Now, it's a cartoon movie, and so you can't really see, but I mean, he grabbed himself and patted his head. Something, it caused pain. And then they continue this conversation. They're they're talking about what he needs to do, and he knows what needs to be done, and you can see this wrestling, and you can tell it's there, and finally he decides what to do. And Rafiki takes another swing at him, but he ducks. Simba ducks and doesn't get hit in the head the second time, because immediately he learned from the past. Well, when he hit him the first time, he immediately said, as they're arguing about it, like, what'd you do that for? He goes, it doesn't matter. It's in the past. And so, that, that wasn't meant to be a joke, but I'm glad y'all laughed. But it, he says, it doesn't matter. It's in the past. And I just wonder if we've brought some of that in here this morning, that we've brought a little bit of that attitude that, that what happened in the past, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Maybe we've brought some of that in the room. And when I say past, Yes, I'm talking about things that that you have done, choices that you've made, positive or negative. Consequences of those positive or negative choices may have also been positive or negative. But we're also talking about choices that other people made. See, Simba made a choice, but it was a result of something someone else did, a result of evil that came into his life because of what someone in his family did. And so I just wonder if maybe some of our past is not only marked by, by choices that we've made, My past is marked by choices that I've made, but it's also marked by choices that others around me, others around you have made. And I just wonder if you bring that attitude. Oh, it it doesn't matter. It's in the past. Or or the extreme opposite of that, that the past matters so much that you're literally paralyzed by your past. You cannot move forward into what God has called you to move into because you are stuck and you can't get out of that. 
And then probably many of us are somewhere in the middle of that, somewhere in between. The past doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter because it's happened. There's nothing we can do to change it. And it means everything. And I can't do anything because I can't change it and I can't overcome it. And there are two characters, in, in one in Joshua and one in Judges, that we learn a little bit about what it means to deal with our past and what God has to say about people with past that the world would say, nah, no, no, God cannot use this person. In the case of Rahab and Jephthah in the book of Judges, God cannot use these two Old Testament heroes that we're looking at this morning with very similar past that, that many in their time would think, and even some today would say, because of what was in their past, in Rahab's case, because of what some of what she had control over, and in Jephthah's case, not a lot that he had control over, because of their stories, God couldn't use them. And yet we see in Joshua chapter 2, and we're going to see in Judges chapters 11 and 12, that God used both of these people, used the woman Rahab, used the man Jephthah for, for very incredible pieces of a much bigger picture of what he was doing in and through the lives of his people. And so we're going to start with Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible and turn there, we're going to look just at kind of a, a summary of the story. We don't have time this morning uh, to read the whole chapter, but we will read uh, seven verses. Uh, so if you've got your Bible and want to turn to Joshua chapter 2, just to catch you up on what's happening, Joshua is now leading the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. Moses has passed away. Joshua has been called to lead. You get Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. And you get him making a decision now, here's what we're going to do next. God has promised us this land, but we're just going to check it out one more time. We're just going to see one more time what's out here. And so he sends out a couple of spies to go ahead of them to check out this land, the land of the Canaanites. And when they get to this one, one village, this one area, they come to the home and were given lodging and safety and provision in the home of a prostitute named Rahab. She took on great risk. Uh, by lying to some people who came and inquired about these spies' whereabouts. And when she shared with them that they had gone one direction when really they had gone another. And that gave them the time, that bought them the time that they needed to get away from being captured so they could go on and being captured by the king of Jericho so they could go on, complete their mission, get back to the Israelites to report back to them what they had seen and heard. And that story is, is told uh, in Joshua chapter 2. But we need to know a couple things about Rahab first. Uh, before we look closely at something she says in a way that she expresses her faith. See, Rahab had several things working against her. Two of them she had no control over whatsoever. The first thing is that she was born a Canaanite. Just where she was born, the place in the world where she was born made her different, and she had no control over that. See, in this, in this story, you have the Israelite people and you have the Canaanites, and so you have people who are at odds with each other. But just because she was born into a certain place at a certain time, into a certain belief system, she didn't allow that to ultimately change her behavior as we get to her opportunity, her place, her purpose in God's story. The second thing is she was a woman. E even that in her day and age disqualified her for certain leadership roles and responsibilities. Others around her would have said, you know, God would use a man to do that. God would use an Israelite. God would use one of his people. God would use a Jewish man to do that. And so two things that she had no control over her affected her immediate circumstances. But then two other things that affected her were her choices. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, to, as a way of income, as a way of feeling a place in society, and as a way of belonging, she, she chose to become, for a certain part of her life, a prostitute. 
And so everything that came with that. And so there, there are depictions of, of this in several commentaries that I read that said, well, maybe it was just that, that she was a part of this lifestyle and not actually involved in it directly. Uh, but it seems that it's very clear from Scripture and the translation of the words that describe what she did that she was involved in that lifestyle herself. So even that, even that choice put her at a distance from culture. I mean, think about today. Think about how we would think about somebody that's in that position. It'd just be our natural tendency to think less of them as a person because of a choice that they make, not understanding any of the circumstances, not understanding anything around that. And then even further in her story, we find out not only did she make the choice to live this lifestyle that was outside of God's will for her life, but she was also a dishonest person. Now, in this one instance, lying actually helped God's people accomplish their mission. So we can have, that's a whole other message. We go through a message series eventually on the Ten Commandments. We'll come to thou shalt not lie. And we can address all the good and the bad and things that come with that. But the thing that, that I've read and, and, and landed on related to this is that really, there, there's not just really a good circumstance that would say, yeah, it's okay to lie. So even in this story, even in this instance where it brings good for the people involved, she still has to deal with the fact that she's viewed by others as a dishonest person. Again, all thinking about what others think about her in this. Because here's what happens then. She gets before these men in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. And you're sitting here thinking, well, this lady doesn't have much faith. She's not a very good person. Society probably doesn't look at her very well. And yet God puts her in a position to be used in a mighty way. And listen to what she says. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sahan and Og, whom you, have devote, whom you devoted to destruction. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you for the... For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Verse 14, and the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And so we see several things from this confession of her faith. We can, we can draw some, some aspects of her faith, even as, as not as a Jewish person, as a woman, as a prostitute, and as a dishonest person. You can draw these things out from here. The first thing is this. She acknowledged God's divine providence in Israel's possession of Canaan. The very first start of her, her confession of faith, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Not, not that you're coming to take this land, not that you're going to win this land in battle, not that these people are going to give you this land, but the Lord has given you this land. So she's already admitting God's providence over his chosen people. The second thing she does is she acknowledges the Lord's presence in Israel's exodus and their migration through the wilderness. You know, that story that takes up the book of Exodus and tells us all about what they did in the desert wanderings and how they got out of Egypt and how God delivered them from that captivity. And she says in verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea 
before when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. They know about these things and how God had delivered them. And so even though she's outside of their faith, geographically, nationally, culturally, she still has an understanding of their faith and still acknowledges the presence of God and, and they're, they're bringing them to that place today. His bringing them to that place that day. And then the last one is just the Lord's sovereignty over the universe and just how God is in complete control of the situation. And so we have this woman here who demonstrated the kind of faith that aligned herself with God's people. So you know what? I'm going to take on some risk by allowing these spies to have shelter and safety in my home, and then I'm going to lie and put myself out there, put myself in danger so that they can then get further away where they needed to go. So if we can take one thing away from Rahab, it's that her, her story is truly one of God using a very ordinary, if not someone considered to be less than ordinary, to do an extraordinary purpose, that God would take someone like me and you, who's ordinary, who has scars, who has failures, who has a past, and said, I'm not worried about any of that. Not, not the extreme of it doesn't matter, it's in the past, not, not that there's still are not going to be some issues related to that, and not the, the extreme of I can't use you, you're worthless to me, but God found worth in her to accomplish his purpose in and through her life, and he used somebody who's ordinary to do something extraordinary. Kind of like the vision that we've been talking about over the last couple of years at church where, where God would use ordinary people and you know, that he would transform our ordinary lives, that we would become world-changing disciple-makers. Uh, funny how God has a way of doing that. Uh, not only did he do that in the life of, of Rahab, but he did that in Jephthah's life in just a little bit different way. Similar set of circumstances. Jephthah was a great warrior. Uh, Judges 11 and 12 recount some of the things that he was able to do in battle. He was a man of valor. He was a very valiant warrior. Um, and because of that, a group of people asked him to lead in their fight against another group of people. And so in this leading, it's addressed that early on in the process that he was born the son of a prostitute. And so you have the same two things in both of these stories, the same lifestyle being a part of two different people's past in different ways, but God using those people uh, for some extraordinary circumstances. Now, what's different about Jephthah's situation is he had no control over that. That was a decision that was made before he was born. That was a de decision that was actually made and led to his being born. And yet God used that circumstance that was messed up for his glory. Now, it didn't come without a cost, though. As we see in Judges chapter 11 and chapter 12, there was a cost to the kind of faith and the way that Jephthah responded in his faith. See, in his commitment to God in verses 29 through 39 that we'll read together, he made a choice of his own. Starting in verse 29, it says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. I'm reading from the ESV translation, and there's a note there, a little number two, and it says, or him. Your Bible may have that note there that some translations may read that as a person. The reason why this is significant is it seems to, to, to be that he was, he was talking about making a vow of, of the first person to walk out the gate of his house. The first person, not the first animal. doesn't make sense that an oxen or, 
or a camel or what sheep or whatever animal may have been there at the time would come out to be the first to greet him. Now, for many of us, it's a pet. We come home, there might be a pet there. There's no pets at our house. My two pets are a six-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl that are usually the first two people to greet me. But in his case, he's thinking about an individual, a person, somebody in his family, in his household that would come out. And he's saying it's so worth it to him to, to gain victory over the Ammonites that he would offer this, this individual up as a burnt offering. So let's see what happens. Verse 32, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Ab- Abel Karimim, and with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was the only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. Verse 37, So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, and she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. So Jephthah's story and what his past brought him to, to this point, left him in a very difficult position. See, for him, it was important enough to to gain victory over the Ammonites that he was willing to take control of his own situation. He was willing to to take control and make this vow, even though it seems to be the nature of God, that he didn't have to do that. He didn't need to do that. That the Lord had placed him in a position of leadership and could use him and give him deliverance if he had not put him in this position. Now, that's not to say that, that, that bargaining, uh, for lack of a better word, with God hasn't resulted in some great things in our history. Martin Luther has an experience where he's in a, in a tower during a lightning storm, spending some time reading Romans chapter 1. It's out of that experience and out of that, that torment and that horror of that experience that he really had a true understanding of how great a separation we have from God because of our sin, but the great importance that was needed in his life uh, to really bring about radical change in the church. Uh, the, the, the Methodist evangelist John Wesley uh, was on a boat from England to the United States once, and a great storm came up, tossed the boat around. Uh, I was reading about this in a biography of his, and he made a commitment there that if God delivered him alive and on the other side from that storm, he would give the rest of his life as an evangelist. Uh, and we now have an entire denomination that can look back to a series of events, and that being a key event in the formation of their denomination and how God used those people and used John Wesley to reach people for Christ during his time. Jephthah's story is a reminder that even though our past may remain with us, we are to cleave even more to Christ than we ever have. That even though our past might stay with us, that even though it looks like from the telling of this story and reading it straightforward and interpreting that way, that, that he spent those days following without his daughter. Now, he went on to judge Israel for six years. He went on to be a leader of God's chosen people and help them see 
their separation from God and help them determine how to move forward in God's, God's will and God's direction for six years. But he had that reminder of that vow and the tragedy and the damage that came from that vow every day after that. And so his story serves as a reminder to you and I that, that even though our past might remain with us, it's not, it doesn't matter, it's, it's completely in the past, it's done and it's over, it's, it sticks with us. We don't have the ability just to completely forget and completely be removed from all circumstances. We can move on from them, but they can't completely be removed. Think about Paul. Constantly throughout his ministry, he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. He described himself in that way. And so we have this this man who's sharing his faith and who's writing these churches and ministering to them in a powerful way. And he keeps reminding them, but I think more importantly, he keeps reminding himself of where he once was. And what changed him was not a decision on his part. It was an appearance and a, and a movement of the Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus Christ in his life that, that cannot be explained any other way. And, and I just wonder this morning as we're here sitting here today, similar to, to Rahab and Jephthah in some senses, we're similar to them in that our past may lead others to think of us differently, to think of us less, to think of us the way that society would have thought of Rahab or would have thought of Jephthah because of their decisions or the decision of those around him. We're also in the same position that they're in because God chose to see them for who he created them to be. The same way he chooses to see you for who you, he's created you to be. That's why this year is our theme, equipping people for their, finding their purpose on God's mission. It's why it's so important to, to us as a staff, to Jeff as our pastor, um, and to hopefully you as our church family is because we're discovering exactly what God has created us for and who we're created to be in His plan to reach others for Christ. God even used them for His purposes in spite of their past. He had a plan. He had providence for the Israelites and getting them into the promised land. He had providence for deliverance of the Israelites against the Ammonites and against or under the leadership of Jephthah. He had a plan for that. He said, I'm going to use people that, that normally wouldn't be used I'm going to call on people that normally wouldn't be called on because I have a great plan for them. And even in their faith, they weren't perfect. See, I think that too many of us, we rest over here on this extreme, that I I can't do anything for the kingdom because I have a past, that I'm not perfect. Uh, The reality is none of us is perfect. The, The world said goodbye to Billy Graham. I mean, we would probably put him up on a pedestal and say, if there's anybody that's that's perfect. It's him, right? And even he would admit he's not perfect. He was a sinner who needed a savior. I'm standing here today to say that I'm a sinner. And at eight years old, I discovered my need for a personal savior and his name is Jesus Christ. So even in our faith, we're not perfect and we can't be perfect. And so maybe this morning you're sitting here thinking, what what does my past mean? What does God think about my past? Well, I think it's this. I think it's that as a church family, I think it's that as individuals, we are a collection, especially for those of us in the room who are believers. We are a collection of people who have individual pasts, but we are a collection of people with a shared past. First Baptist Church Conroe is a collection of people with 126 years of shared past. And let me tell you what that past looks like. See, as a body, we have a past, and that past was marked by alienation. That past was marked by loneliness, by destruction, by darkness, by sin, and by death. But as I mentioned, Paul, changed by the person of Jesus Christ, Martin Luther, John Wesley, myself, Billy Graham, P. 
people changed by the person of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice that came once and for all. And because of that, because of our Savior, that past is no more. See, we can live in the present and we can look to a future that's marked not by alienation, but marked by community. That we can look to a future and live in a present marked by relationship, not loneliness, by creation, not destruction, by light, not darkness, by forgiveness and grace and not sin. That we can live in a present marked by life and not death. And as I watched the, the kids sing and dance this morning, I saw life. And as we, we watch people leave this service at the end of the early service and go to their life group, and y'all, some of y'all come in and go to life group and then come in here, we see life. Uh, we have t-shirts that are people that are being baptized in the baptistry each time we have them that say raised to life. See, our, our, our past is not marked by any of those things that the world would say, yeah, this is who you are. It's marked by who Jesus Christ says we were. And, and I hope and pray this morning that, that you would come to a place in your life Maybe you're sitting here and you're living in your past, and tomorrow you'll be living in your past, and the next day, and the next day, and the day after that, until you come to a place where you once and for all realize that your past was nailed to the cross with Jesus, and it was buried with him once and for all, and it stayed buried, and he was risen again, and he's alive, and because of that, I can stand here today and say that, yes, in a sense, it doesn't matter. It's in the past, and yes, in a sense, we can't move forward on our own. We are paralyzed until someone comes in and does something. And that's right there in the middle where I hope that that many of you are in that place in life when you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and you've realized that that He defines who I am. His sacrifice defines me. Maybe for some, it's just like Rahab and Jephthah had to discover that now we've got to decide how are we going to live in light of what God thinks about our past? What are we going to do in light of what God thinks about our past. 